You would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 6. We're going to wrap up Micah next week. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I will admit it's given me a lot more confidence to approach the prophets. Uh, young preachers are normally scared of the prophets. Um, they're easier, more comfortable places to, to hang out. And so I've just, this has been a stretching summer and uh, I don't know, I'm excited to think about the future and uh, what might possibly follow Samuel. But we'll be in Micah 6 this morning and I've, the past few weeks I've just kind of been giving you images that might help to guide your thought as we approach the text and the image that I've got for you this week is that of a married couple in a courtroom. 
And they aren't there because they're adopting a child or because of any other positive reason. They're there in the courtroom because tragically there are huge problems in their marriage. At one time they'd been so very happy together and if you'd look back at pictures of them on their wedding day there were smiles all around. Uh, They'd stood before witnesses and pledged themselves to each other. Uh, They'd left that sacred ceremony hopeful and excited about the life they would build together. And here they are in a courtroom. And one is particularly annoyed by the other. And annoyed might be a light term to use. There's one who looks at the other and thinks, what would it take for you to leave me alone? This this is the spouse who pulls out the checkbook and says, what would it take? You want the investments? You want the house? You want the children? You want the vacation home? Things aren't going to change here, but I'll give you what you want so long as you leave me alone and let me live the way that I want to live. I think that's a picture of what we see in Micah 6. The difference, though, is that in the opening illustration, you have a husband and wife standing before a judge, but in Micah 6... The Lord is the offended party, and he is also the judge. And through Micah, his attorney, he brings charges of covenant unfaithfulness against his people. You know, there's another Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, who speaks for the Lord and tells of this relationship and history between God and his people. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in one of our our prayers, uh, but in Ezekiel 16, God describes Israel as a helpless, abandoned infant. He tells them, you were the child of unbelieving pagan parents who abandoned you. After you were born, no one washed you. No one wrapped you in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you or had compassion on you. Instead, you were thrown out into an open field. But when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your own blood, I took you and gave you life. And you flourished. That's the image of what the Lord did for Israel, rescuing and adopting an abandoned infant. Ezekiel then continues with another picture. He continues illustrating the Lord's relationship with his people, and the metaphor changes. Uh, this is no longer an infant. But now a full-grown woman, 
who is of age, and the Lord marries her. He says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you and married you. You became mine. I clothed you with fine clothing. I adorned you with gold and jewelry. I fed you rich foods. And you grew exceedingly beautiful. Your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. But then what does the bride do? Sadly, she trusted in her beauty and riches and prostituted herself because she was not satisfied. And the Lord goes on to say of her, how sick is your heart because you did all these things. Things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. And that's really what we're dealing with in the book of Micah. God is bringing a lawsuit against his people because of their unfaithfulness and wickedness and sick hearts. And here's a summary statement before we read today's text. Your God cares about your heart. He will not be content with possessing anything less. He's after who you are at the very core and fiber of your being. You might remember some words that Jesus will speak to the Pharisees. Jesus will quote Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. They're speaking to the same people. And Jesus will quote Isaiah speaking to the Pharisees. And he says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. We're going to see this morning that there is no buying him off. There's no take this. Now leave me alone. There's no, all right, Lord, I'll give you Sunday morning, but the rest of the week is mine. There's no, I'll write a big check to the building fund of this local church as long as you let me do whatever I want. Now we see that your covenant Lord won't be content with that. He wants your heart to be near him. He wants your life to testify to your belief that your chief end, why you exist on planet earth, is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's what he's after. He will not be satisfied with your external religious actions and sacrifices and words. He wants you to return and for your heart to find its joy and contentment him. And that's what we'll see in today's text. But first, let's pray before we read God's Word. Father God, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, we remember that your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens and it cannot be moved. 
we remember that it is the very word of God breathed out by you, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that we, your people, might be built up and equipped for every good work. Speak, O Lord. Your people are listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, or bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. And you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall, show, you shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels. That I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And we've got that image of a courtroom scene where the Lord is 
judge. Micah is the attorney. The people of Israel are on trial because of their covenant breaking. And the scene begins with the prophet summoning creation to listen and bear witness. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. When you and I go to court, we stand before a jury of our peers. But in this case, who's the jury? Who's witnessing this? The immovable mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. Here at the start, we are reminded of the greatness and magnitude of this God. Micah then speaks the words of the Lord to the people. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. We are given a clue here as to what's wrong with the people. We're told how they felt about their Lord. They were weary and tired. They viewed their relationship with him as a burden. Their feelings were the exact opposite of everything described in Psalm 119. The longest psalm in your Bible. Over and over again, the psalmist will say things like, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are my delight. But they felt the exact opposite. They felt restricted. They felt weighed down. They felt that walking with the Lord was a chore. And instead, they preferred to follow their own desires, their own interests, their own rules. And just an aside here, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just saying this. I, I really mean it, and this is what you as a congregation pay me to do. If you feel this way, would you please come talk to me? If walking with the Lord is a burden, if it makes you feel tired, if it is joyless, would you please be brave enough, be humble enough to come talk to me or to one of our elders or for our kids? If you are feeling this way, would you admit it to your parents? Because something is wrong. Maybe you've gotten the gospel confused. Maybe you aren't seeing Christ clearly. Maybe there's a pet sin that you just aren't willing to part with. Because again, do you remember the words that Jesus says in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Was Jesus lying? Was he just trying to trick them into committing to something that they would later regret? Of course not. To, to feel this way, as if walking, is, walking with Jesus is hard and heavy, if he wearies you, that is a sign of spiritual unhealth. I think we all know that when we feel bad physically, we're going to go to the doctor. If you're feeling fatigued spiritually, please talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. That's what God's people were feeling. And he says, what have, I, what have I done to you? Tell me. Prove why I am so tiresome. Please give some evidence. They obviously don't have any. And then God provides his own evidence. I'll tell you what I've done for you. You were groaning under the whip of Pharaoh. You were being crushed by the heavy hand of slavery, but I rescued you. I freed you and brought you out from under that cruel tyrant. I sent my mediator Moses to deliver you. I carried you every step of the way. I brought you safely across the Red Sea. I drowned Pharaoh's army. I fed you manna and quail every day. I gave you fresh water to quench your thirst. I protected you from your enemies. We've got a reference here. Remember King Balak and Balaam. He says, this king was terrified of you. He wanted you cursed and dead. And so he goes to this man. He pays him. This man, Balaam, who apparently possessed great spiritual powers. This king pays him and says, I want you to speak curses over Israel. But I protected you. I exerted my power so that every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse you, the only thing that came out was blessing. Is that what wearied you? Or how about the journey from Shittim to Gilgal? You remember that journey? What happened? I brought you safely across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. My priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, stepped in the waters. And immediately they were blocked and began to pile up as if an invisible dam was now holding them back. And you all safely crossed from one side of the river to the other. Do you remember that? Did that weary you? And he could have kept going. He could have talked about the walls of Jericho falling down. All they had to do was march around and yell. He could have talked about time and again delivering them during the times of the judges when they would cry out. He could have talked about giving them a king after God's own heart named David. But he ends it there. And so I'd say to any of you listening today, have you forgotten the righteous acts of the Lord? Have you forgotten who you were? And what God has done. 
Go back to that image in Ezekiel 16. You were like that abandoned baby laying dirty and bloody in a field. But he passed by and saw you and gave you life and cleansed you and caused you to flourish. He chose you, rescued you, loved you first, adopted and brought you into his family. In the lavish riches of his grace, he sent the Lord Jesus to shed his blood and die so that your sin and guilt would be atoned for. So that you would have peace with him. And he hasn't left you alone, but has given you the promised spirit who is the guarantee that you have an inheritance. And that one day he will bring you there to that place where every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more. And there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And all of creation will be made new. Perhaps following him feels like a burden because you've forgotten what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Now, the purpose behind all of this, the purpose of reminding them is to call the people back. Call the prodigal to come home, to come near that they might once again know the richness and blessing and joy that is found dwelling in his house. Come back home. And then we move on, verses 6 and 7. It's that moment in the courtroom where one spouse pulls out the checkbook and says, all right, how much do you want? You're obviously upset. What can I do to make this right? And we see this here. It begins with burnt offerings or a yearling calf. Expensive sacrifice. Or what about a thousand rams? Which, by the way, that's only a sacrifice that King Solomon could make. What if we did that, Lord? Would that be enough? What about ten thousands of rivers of oil? What if that beautiful, clean oil is just running out of the temple? Would that... Would that be enough? Or what if we demonstrated the faith of Abraham? Father Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac. What if we had a faith like him? Would you be pleased? Would that be enough? And what's the answer? No. And this is not hard for us to understand. We all get this. Think of a son whose father says to him, I'll provide for you a beautiful home. I will provide for you the money to buy nice clothes and a nice car. I'll pay for your school You'll be free to use the vacation home whenever you want. But just leave me alone because I'm going to be busy at the office. Will that be enough for that son? Maybe for a little while. 
Maybe in the younger, more immature years, that son would, would brag to his friends about everything his father's given him. Do you know what Gen Zers would call that? Cope. It might be okay for a time. But in the end, even though that son was raised with a silver spoon, he will come to resent his absent, unloving father. We all understand this. Children understand this. Wives understand this. We don't just want your money. We want you. Look at the Lord's response here to their offers. In verses 6 and 7, they make their offer. And he, he says, I don't want your expensive sacrifice, your thousand rams, your rivers of oil, your hyperbolic willingness to sacrifice one of your children to me. I don't want that. That will not please me because I care about your heart. And your heart is clearly sick and cold and far from me. But here's what I do want. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's what I want. That's what faithfulness and loyalty and love to me looks like. Don't offer me lavish gifts. Give me justice and loving kindness and a humble walk with me. He says, I require you to act justly, which means you will not cheat. You will not show partiality. You will not lie or bear false witness. In all of life, live in a right and proper way that mirrors me. Even if doing so causes you to take a loss or to be despised in the workplace. I require you to love kindness. Our God is compassionate and gracious. He delights to show mercy and kindness, and we're to be like him. In John, 1 John 4, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are to love kindness, which means it's not something that we begrudgingly do. I, I, have, to, I have to be nice to you. No, it's something we love to do, gladly do. We are to love kindness. And thirdly, I require you to humbly walk with your God. And I mentioned in previous weeks that to walk refers to the whole of your life. Your life's journey. Your pilgrim's progress. It's to be a humble walk with the Lord. It's to be heavenly minded thinking about where our road inevitably ends. Remembering that he's king and we're not. He's God and we're not. It's trusting him to provide all we need 
both in this life and in the life to come. Humbly walk with your God. These three things are the natural outflow of knowing and experiencing the power and grace of God in your life. Again, he's not going to be content with a cold heart promising big gifts. He wants, he requires you to mirror him and obey him and worship him. To not live in darkness, but to live in the light as he is in the light. And now I want to be clear. God is not telling his people, if you do these things, I will grant you eternal life. He's not telling his people, if you do these three things, you will earn my peace. Your sin will be atoned for and your name will be added to the book of life. That's not what he's saying. It's clear looking back at verses 4 and 5, he's already saved them. He's already redeemed them. He's protected them. He's brought them to a place where they're now free to worship and enjoy him. And he's saying, do that. You can't earn your way to heaven. That's what... Jesus has done in your place. We cannot mix up the order of salvation here. This is not teaching us the doctrine of salvation by works. What this is teaching is what life looks like once you belong to him. One commentator noted that the Lord's requirement is that those whom he has favored with his salvation... Express their gratitude by living in the way he wants. I want to give you a picture of this. It's a, it's a lengthy quote, but stay with me. It's, it's worth it. It comes from the life of the Scottish missionary John Payton. This is from his autobiography. John Payton dearly loved his earthly father, And as a young man, the time came for John to leave his small town and go to Glasgow to attend seminary and become a missionary. It was a 40-mile walk from his home to the nearest train station. And Peyton recalls this memory he still holds in his autobiography. And he wrote this, quote, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. 
His tear, in tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see, uh, yet, see if he yet stood where I'd left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. Now I'm almost done. This is the last couple sentences. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. End quote. That's a picture of Micah 6.8. Our God has been so good to us, so faithful, so loving, so kind, so forgiving, so generous, so patient, that we respond in overflowing gratitude. We respond by deeply committing ourselves now and often that with the help and power of the Holy Spirit, we would live and act in a way never to grieve or dishonor our Heavenly Father. I mean, this is a good heart test. Read Micah 6.8. Does it make you feel burdened and wearisome? Or does it make you say, Holy Spirit, help me today and every day. My Father has been so good, so faithful, and flame my heart with love and gratitude so that I might desire more and more to please and honor Him. There's another motivation. I've already mentioned it in passing. It's not simply gratitude. It's also emulation. We read Micah 6.8, and we should desire to be like him. He does justice. There's no partiality with God. He is not an unjust judge. He loves kindness. Over and over we read, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and never will you read of one more compassionate. He is humble. The creator of the universe is humble. Don't forget he dwelt in a tent with his people all the way from Sinai until this time Solomon built the temple. 
mean, you remember how uncomfortable this made David. David said, I'm living in this palace made out of cedar, and you're living in a tent. The Lord responded and said, I've lived in a tent the entire time I've been with your people. He is humble. That's who he is. And as his children, we want to be like him. I mean, just think of young children looking admiringly at their parents and wanting to be like them. To do what they do. That's part of the motivation here. Now, of course, you're going to do this imperfectly. But a transformed heart desires to be shaped more and more into this image to look like him. There's gratitude and there's emulation. And now don't get nervous. I'm not going to take nearly as long to get through the second half. What do you see in verses 9 through 16? There is the naming of sin and the judgment of sin. I don't know. Maybe there's someone listening who isn't a Christian. Maybe you're looking at the culture around you. You see what's celebrated and enjoyed and pursued, and you say, I want that. More than Micah 6 8. Maybe you're resting on some personal belief that you're a decent person and it would be sadistic of God. It would be overly harsh of him to judge you. Please hear me. You look at the final half of Micah 6 and you see where the road ends. Sooner or later, Those who continue in their sin, continue with the clenched fist of rebellion. I want to do what I want to do. It ends with death and judgment. And the judge of the universe looking and saying guilty. That's where this road ends. And you can't write a check big enough. You can't offer a sacrifice Valuable enough to save your skin. You need, just as we all need, a sacrifice infinitely more valuable than the burning of a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil. You and I, our only hope is found in the blood of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, slain for sinners. And know that the window of grace has not closed. Cry out to him. Plead for him to change your heart. Plead for him to draw you to himself. To reorient your heart and your affections toward him. He will forgive you. He will heal you. And he will give you rest. That's for those who might be outside the household of faith. But for those inside, for the believers, briefly hear this. Perhaps you feel like an ashamed prodigal. 
Perhaps you feel like the unfaithful, sinful bride that Ezekiel spoke of. But I want you to hear these words that are spoken later by the same God about the same bride. This is in Hosea 11. Do you know what he says of her? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My compassion grows warm and tender. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Hear those words. He speaks over his covenant people. Remember his faithful, righteous acts. And draw near to him. I want you to hear these words. I'm not going to sing them this morning because I want you to hear them clearly. These are words that you and I are about to sing together. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Let's pray. Father, indeed we cannot fret. We remember your spirit dwells within us. We remember that you, our heavenly father, smile upon us. And that the Lord Jesus has died for us. Father, would such a knowledge transform our lives? Would it inflame our hearts? Would it make us more like the psalmist in Psalm 119 that just cries out, Show me, show me, Lord, your wondrous works. Open up to me the wonderful things in your word, in your law. Father, help us. Help us, Lord. We are your children. We thank you for sending your spirit. Would he continue his work? You've promised, again, that the work you've completed, you will finish. We trust you to do so. Bless your people, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.